You're listening to the Sales Process Excellence Podcast with Michael Webb. B2B sales and marketing works to find the highest quality prospects, reach decision makers, and sell value. Operational excellence uses data and systems thinking to make changes that cause improvement and eliminate waste. My name is Michael Webb, and this is the Sales Process Excellence Podcast. In the next 30 to 40 minutes, we're going to destroy the myth that these two groups conflict and show you how to bring both strategies together to create more wealth for your company and your customers. Hello, everyone. This is Michael Webb, and I'm pleased today to bring to you a guest that I have not spoken with before, but because of his background, as you'll see, I'm very excited to to have this discussion, and I think there's going to be some pretty interesting discoveries that come out of our conversation. I'm on today with Trip Babbitt. Trip is the president of a firm called the 95 Method. Trip, welcome here. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for having me on. Now, you also have been involved with the Deming Institute. And remember, my audience is mostly executives who are focused in on sales and marketing. Most of them have heard of Deming, but could you just kind of share your background? Because as I understand, you came from a place very different than people who come into a sales and marketing career typically come from. So tell us where you've been and what's the journey you've been on. Interestingly, I actually started in sales, but uh, really, I didn't know. Uh, yeah, that. yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I worked for an industrial distributor in the Midwest. Then I got my MBA. I, be- I was a manager for an industrial distributor, and I got invited once I became a manager to a seminar by W. Edwards Deming from Allison Transmission, one of his original four-day seminars that he did uh-huh. across the U.S. Just completed my MBA. I was expecting kind of more of the same types of stuff with the education I get out of the seminar. And what I got instead was a big smack in the face. Dr. Deming's seminar was pretty much the opposite of everything that I'd been taught in my MBA program and is still being taught today in MBA programs throughout the U.S. Parenthetically, my son just signed up for a very expensive, very prestigious MBA program. I tried to talk him out of it and I couldn't. So <laughs> we'll make the most well, of it that we can. <laughs> very good. We could talk about that too, if you'd like. But, uh, but I was really intrigued by the Deming philosophy. And so I eventually started my own consulting business and I used the Deming philosophy. So it's based off of his system of profound knowledge, which is systems thinking, which I know is near and dear to your heart. Theory of variation, which is the data, theory of knowledge and psychology. And I use that as kind of the basis of what I call, and you mentioned the 95 method. And that's kind of the, the short and long of it, I guess, so to speak, of, of kind of my story and how I got into this. Many of the people who are in my audience, they've learned about process improvement or process excellence and the Deming philosophy. They got to it through being trained in Six Sigma or in lean. So it would be great to get your perspective on this, I don't know what you would call it, this uh, operational excellence marketplace, because there's several different flavors. And I'd love to understand your perspective of where you sit compared to, for example, people who are who go at it from a Six Sigma orientation or a lean orientation or the Shingo Institute. I think you have to have a little bit of history in order to kind of understand the Deming philosophy in Japan. When Dr. Deming went to Japan in 1950, he basically 
started a whole new program and some of the things in his system of profound knowledge. It was the beginning of what would be later called lean. And and I would even say an offshoot of that would be Six Sigma Two because he used uh, Walter Schuhart's control charts. And so the base philosophy of Deming to me is what is exactly missing from lean and Six Sigma. So I am a Six Sigma master black belt. So I went and did that under a lady by the name of Dr. Frony Ward. And I also worked with uh, Dr. Don Wheeler for a little bit in order to get my data smacks. So I believe these are lean, what being the Toyota production system in essence is what it's based off of. You got to remember in Japan, Dr. Deming worked in a number of industries, not just auto industry, but he, and just within the auto industry, he not only worked with Toyota, but he also worked with Nissan and, well, it was Datsun at the time, and then uh, Honda, and then a number of other companies throughout. So to me, Lean got off, I think, for a long time, focused on tools. And the Deming philosophy is just that. It's a philosophy. It's not a method. It's a way of learning and, you know, one of the things I always challenge lean folks to is, so what new tools are you, have you developed? Because I always hear about the same, same old ones. And Deming's philosophy was set up for us to continually update and innovate the way that we think about work and product and, and everything else and management for that matter. Let's dig into that a little bit, because I agree with you the Deming philosophy, the four fundamental principles seem to me to be at the root of the tools of lean, the method of lean, right? Focusing on flow mm-hmm. and distinguishing value from waste and, and using that as sort of your North Star. But they're also underpinning the tools of Six Sigma, which is much more measurement oriented and statistically oriented. And it also is underpinning the ideas of the Shingo Institute, which is way more management focused. Would you agree Mm. with that? I don't know much about the Shingo Institute. Uh, I know a little bit more about Six Sigma. I think there are some tools in there that they use, statistical tools that are unnecessary. As a matter of fact, most of them. But the one tool that I often find, even new green belts and even black belts on occasion, they aren't familiar with Shuhart's control charts. Right. That's a shame because that's a very primary tool. Matter of fact, any organization not using Schuhart's control charts that Dr. Deming made famous are really missing out on an opportunity to look at their data in a refreshing way. And it gets to some of the things that you talked about in this podcast about you know using systems thinking because you got to understand what's attributable to a system versus attributable to special causes or the individual. Yes, absolutely right. What I understand about the Shingo Institute is very interesting, and it's very compatible with what you're doing, as I understand it, and we'll get to it in a minute, about the the 95 Mm -hmm. method. But it's a set of principles for how senior executives can help change the culture. And Mm -hmm. so they, they don't get a lot into the tools. They fully recognize the error of teaching people about tools and why when you try to introduce this change to a business to give them these problem solving tools, it typically doesn't get sustained because the people in the business don't know why. They don't know why to do this, right? And so they just have a bunch of tools, doesn't help much. But when they understand the why, then they can see, well, they can invent their own tools, right? They can put them together in creative ways. And the Shingo Institute, it sounded to me like it was a similar type of a focus to what 
what you and perhaps the folks at the Deming Institute were trying to accomplish? The Deming Institute itself is more focused on just the fundamentals of the Deming philosophy. What I found lacked in the environment was a way to transform an organization through the individual. So one of the Deming's famous quotes is, and it's actually from The New Economics, which was the last book he wrote before he passed, but the first step is transformation of the individual. One of the things that I heard as I was listening to some of your podcast episodes where people talking about, you know, people just don't understand or they don't do those types of things. Well, a lot of that's rooted in neuroscience where we don't like to feel unimportant as an individual. We want a predictable future. We want to have control of things. We want some freedom. We want to be social. We want to have some integrity or fairness within our organization. And so one of the first things, and the reason I put the 95 method together, and you've alluded to it in your podcast before also, is that 95% of the performance of the organization is attributable to the system. So the 95 in the 95 method focuses then on the system. So that's the steps. And actually what I'm building, and I am building it with people that have volunteered within organizations to help steer what works and what doesn't work is a method to go through to first understand their organization. A lot of changes are made kind of top down or because somebody has a great idea. And what I find better is that you need to involve everyone because they want that control or freedom. And if you're going to train, change people on the front line or really anybody in an organization, you need a method for making that change occur so that they can see things differently. And that's really what the 95 method is all about. Let's distinguish mm -hmm. then what that helping people see things differently so they can change. Where does that fit in with the job of management? If the transformation begins with the individual, whether you're in middle management, frontline, or an executive, then you need a method to kind of understand your organization. And the larger your organization gets, the more complex and more bureaucratic it becomes. And people don't really understand everything that's going on within their system. And the best right. way to get to understand their system is customer in. So taking a view from sitting in a customer seat and where that happens is typically you know, a lot of organizations have contact centers and listening to phone calls and listening to what customers say and what types of interactions are they bringing to the table so that they can understand exactly what's happening within their organization and how their frontline folks uh, react to that. Now, when you do that, obviously, executives then try to fix things, which you don't want to do. You just want to understand how your system is working. And if people are doing things wrong, they're doing it probably for a reason. And those are systemic changes you need to do. And the thing that's lacking in management today, and it doesn't matter what management position that you're in, is that ability to see the entire system. And this, Michael, dates back to really the Industrial Revolution, which is where we had craft industry, where the person that came into the shop, you know, and they were going to make a shoe, they made the whole shoe. They worked with the customer until it fit right and did those types of things. And the Industrial Revolution comes along with Frederick Taylor, and then you got your specialization, your different right. departments doing different pieces. And so people don't lack the view of seeing things systemically or end to end. And so part of the, what I'm building with the, the 95 method is the, the beginning part is to understand how things flow 
through your organization and not because of what you think it is doing, but because you have knowledge of what you're doing. And that applies to anybody, whether you're a salesperson, frontline, middle manager, executive, because getting that view and getting agreement on what customers are trying to get out of that system helps you not only prioritize, but it also tells you how your system is performing. Let's take what you just said, that craft Mm -hmm. industry to multiplying the division of labor, the complexity of it, and then how that applies or impacts on the commercial side, the sales side of an organization for a moment. And I wanted to see if you would would agree with this. From my reading of it and, and consulting with companies over the last 17 years, the Frederick Taylor days, Frederick or someone would study how the work is done, use a stopwatch, come up with a new design and give it to the people to do as though they were a machine. Automatons, mm-hmm. just go do mm-hmm. it. Creates mm-hmm. all kinds of backlash, immune reactions. People don't like that. The next kind of phase seemed to be, well, there's all these tools that you can use. So they teach people to use the tools, but they didn't know why to do it. So likewise, okay, we'll do it for a while. And if it works, great. But if it doesn't, it falls into disuse. And what appears to me to be today, and this is so critical in sales, where people are constantly given a sales process, but having been in that role, I know you have to just give lip service to the sales process because only parts of it really help you do your job. Most Mm -hmm. of it does not help you do your job. It gets in the way of doing your job. So salesperson's in a difficult spot. The proper role of the, quote, process is for the people doing the work to express how best to get it done, how best to achieve the objective. The proper role of the process is not for somebody on high or outside the company to come in and tell people how to do the work. Would you agree with that? I do. And there's actually in the military now where everything used to be command and control, it's now done through something called the commander's intent. It's not take the hill and do these steps. It's take the hill. You figure out how to take the hill. Absolutely. What you're saying is right on. And what I'm trying to do is develop a method for people to be able to understand that to the point the people doing the work may have to make adjustments. You know, if you're going to take that hill and all of a sudden the whole army that you're fighting against is on the front part and you're told to go right straight up the front part, then you may need to adjust your theory and maybe try a different method in order to achieve the end that you're looking for, the goal. I really appreciate the fact that you started out as a salesperson in industrial sales, and now Mm -hmm. you have all this background and experience and studying you've done about management systems. I mean, what are your observations about the the marketing and sales side of the business and the pains and problems they have and what this approach can do for them? It helps you understand not just the piece that you're in. So if you're in sales, you have a tendency to be very focused on trying to make the sale and that that's the only thing. It has to be much broader than that. There has to be something that you're gaining knowledge about the customer, you're gaining knowledge about different things. And I would even say, you know, as part of the 95 method, one of the big things that's missing from a lot of organizations, big or small, is innovation. And I don't necessarily expect that from a salesperson, but they do get insight and they are valuable players and can be an innovation. And certainly anybody that's selling knows how easy it is to sell something new that people want. (laughs) And it makes the the sales job a lot easier. And I think today, 
we still kind of have, and it, it's disappearing, I think, slowly. But you know, from a management, a sales management perspective, we still have a lot of command and control. It's it's a formula. You know, if you make so many calls and you go and you check this these many boxes, that's not systemic enough. That's too command and control and doesn't understand necessarily the broader system that is at work. It's been a long time since I've been in that type of sales, but we're all selling every day to a certain degree. But education on products and services and really understanding when I was with an industrial distributor, understanding how manufacturing work was was something that I had to gain knowledge on in order to be able to sell products or find new products that would help them, you know, increase their their productivity. These systems come into contact when a salesperson meets up with someone, whether it's a manufacturing firm or a service company or an individual. And so understanding their system has got to be a major part of that process. And salespeople are caught in the crosshairs of a pretty big dilemma because the companies that employ them, employ them to bring money to the company, bring customers in who are going to pay us money. That's the oxygen. We have to have that. They may see, well, we got to sell solutions instead of products without Mm -hmm. ever really defining the problem they're trying to solve, right? And then so they'll hire sales training. And I was in the sales training industry for seven years. There's lots of very valuable skills, active listening skills and research skills and communication skills that can help salespeople be more effective in these complex sales environments where there's multiple different decision makers. But they all take more time and they take more energy. The salesperson very quickly reaches a point where he doesn't have enough time to do all the Mm -hmm. things that he needs to do, but that pressure to bring the money in is there. And so the salespeople are in a, in a difficult uh, kind of environment, and there's nobody in the company that's looking around to see, well, how can we make this job easier? Instead, they take the guys who, or gals who made the most revenue, and they reward them handsomely. The rest of them are just slackers, and you need to go do some more training, and you need to organize yourself better. And it's as though they're all just individual contributors instead of the fact that they actually work in a system. I guess you can tell there's a little personal yeah, frustration yeah, sure. there because <laughs> well, I was I think, there for yeah. many years. Yes. Well, well, Michael, you're exactly right. And I think one of the first things that I learned and, and why I'm putting the 95 method together the way that I am is you got to lose the judgment, the judgment of people and the judgment that this is the right way and we have the one right way. That's very old Frederick Taylor type of thinking and industrial revolution age stuff. And I think what you have to do is kind of sit back and take an inventory, and this is part of, of what I'm building, is understand the theories that are at work. Here's what I believe works, and you write those things down. I believe that you know you need to hammer the salesperson, those types of things. I'm very non-judgmental about those things uh, these days because I want to understand why they believe that that theory is working and what results are they getting from that thinking. Typically, they're going to have high turnover. They're going to have unhappy customers, those types of things. So maybe we ought to look at some new theories. And when you go through this process of developing new theory, you want to try different things. And this is how organizations can innovate, whether it's reading or you know listening to a podcast or new salespeople or even the existing salespeople. If they build something that they believe will work and you try it out, and preferably on a small scale, then you can start to learn new methods that work better. 
And so in order to make that change happen, it's not a matter of me being the sales manager, the old school sales manager hammering out people, but kind of coming back and saying, all right, I need to get rid of this judgment thing <laughs> that I have, uh, that, you know, that I have a perfect method and they just need to follow it. That people have views. They want to explore. They want, they want to be curious. They, they have ideas and, and getting those and starting to develop new theories is the best way to go about it because the organization with the best theories, whether it's in sales or operations or whatever, is the one that's going to win in any industry. So constantly challenging existing theories that are at work is what you want to do. And you want to do that in a non-judgmental way. And unfortunately, alluding to your frustration, a lot of times <laughs> that's not done without judgment. <laughs> you know, oh, yeah. you, you didn't you didn't try hard enough. Not a matter of that. It's a matter of working smarter. It's not the judgment that's the problem, but how we make the judgment. Because if you come up with a new theory, a new experiment, and it works, because mm -hmm. the data shows you that we've had improvement, then you can judge that this is a better theory. And we need that judgment. We need to make those decisions, right? Mm -hmm. But it's the judgment in absence of data. It's just by going from the executive's gut feel or what have you. Would you agree with that? To a certain degree, yes, and to a certain degree, no. So there, you know, Deming is famous. There's often a quote across the internet. Deming was all about data, and without data, you're just another person with an opinion and stuff like that. Well, those are not things that Deming said. <laughs> Matter of fact, De Deming often talked about the unknown and unknowable types of data. And so you have to work off of theory a lot of times and then take data that is basically casting a shadow. So I may never know the cost of an unhappy customer, right? I mean, they supposedly they tell 15, 20 other people, but we will never know what the number is, but we can get an idea by the attrition of customers and things of that sort. So I'm not right. saying that no data and data can be helpful. The data is basically the feedback loop for what you're doing. And you may often not have the type of data that you directly need, and you're going to have to look elsewhere for ways that's coming across. And so we have to develop theories based off of what we're learning in the organization, sometimes without data, <laughs> um, and, and look for ways to uh, get data on what it is other than the, the end result. Data is always helpful if it's available, but it also can be a double-edged sword. And here we enter into a, an area that is rich with opportunity because there are differences in the culture between sales and marketing and in a manufacturing environment. And in the manufacturing, especially in the engineering side of things and the process excellence side of things, I mean, they know that they have to have operational definitions, a method of how you arrived at that number, that data. Mm -hmm. Those operational definitions, they take the form of words and concepts. So you have data and you don't know what you're measuring. It doesn't mean anything right? Data outside of a context is not meaningful. In sales and marketing, we have all these words we use. Customer. We sort of assume we know what we mean by customer. Fact is, you can go in most companies, especially large ones, and ask four different people, maybe in different departments, who's the customer, and you are virtually guaranteed to not get the same answer. There's a few things that go through my head as you, as you talk there. One is the need for shared aim, shared purpose, if you will. And getting that has to come through some type of method for people to be able to agree on things. 
Yes. So whether it's operational definitions or whatever it is, you get agreement. And the approach that I'm taking is that they take a customer in view of the organization and a method to do that. So that they're all kind of singing from the same music, that they're seeing the same things when they're listening to phone calls or, or listening to interactions with customers. And by getting that kind of shared understanding of what's happening within the organization, and having a shared aim or purpose associated with it, then you are going to be able to get people singing from the same sheet of music. And that's really, again, what I'm trying to build in the 95 method is a method for doing that so that an engineer or a salesperson or an operational person or an executive or a contact center person can all sit there and have a method go through and they can talk about it. There's no reason that somebody on the front line can't talk to an executive other than cultural barriers that exist within organizations, which are just foolish. Having those interactions and talking about one thing that you, you will argue about everything in an organization if you take your functional view. If you are talking about what the customer saw, that's a better conversation because now you have kind of this touch point that you can go to and say, Here's what the customer's saying, and here's the data associated with it, getting back to your, your need for data, to be able to say, this is how we're performing. This is how we're viewed by our customers, and that kind of gives you that rallying point. And then I think after you get that type of knowledge, then I think you can start to build a better aim or purpose from that, and that, that kind of gets people on, on the same page. In support of your concept of that customer, that outside-in view, I was doing a podcast with Brian Carroll, who is the president of Markempa. He's focusing on marketing and empathy. He also wrote a best-selling book called Lead Generation for the Complex Sale back about 10 or 15 years ago. That's how okay. I met him. He learned something in a few years ago that had sort of changed his direction. And he had heard that there was this really odd company that was making all sorts of record growth and customer satisfaction, but it was a collection agency. And when he, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I heard he, the story. Yeah. You did? Okay. Yeah. So when he <laughs> yeah, learned, yeah. he learned that the secret of this collection agency, which was growing and way profitable, way outside the norm of its industry was that instead of pursuing their people who didn't have any money and, and beatings will continue until you pay the bill and all that, they took a reverse kind of approach and tried to understand what those people needed. And if they needed to find a job, they'd provide something to help them find a job, right? If they needed to find an apartment, <laughs> help them do that. Whatever it was that they needed, they found ways of doing that. You wouldn't expect that at all from a collection agency. But yeah. by doing that, they won support from their so-called, I, I guess it's the customers, but from the client anyway. And they created all this goodwill and it had this counterintuitive approach. Brian started trying it in the company he was working for doing lead generation. And instead of trying to find somebody who's ready to buy our product, they tried to find out when the person came to the website and downloaded something, what were they looking for? And they tried to find other things to help that person. Counterintuitively, they grew 300% by taking that approach rather than a sales approach. Here, do something I want you to do. It's what do you want to do? And let me see if there's something I might be able to do to help you. And it seems to have worked. I've heard that story before. And when I hear it, the first thing that comes to mind is that they understand the business that they are in. 
So if we go back to some of the you know, famous Deming maybe analogies that would go with that. If you thought you were in the buggy whip business or the carburetor business, you're out of business. Now, if you understood that you were in something to do with motorized vehicles and support for that, or that you were looking for ways to getting the gas to come together so it would be able to run the car, then you would have been able, been in the business to understand that my purpose isn't making better buggy whips or carburetors, but a greater aim, a greater understanding of what business that they are in. And so this gentleman that you're talking about in the Kledgekin Agency understood that there was a broader perspective associated with what business that they were in. And, and I think that a lot of organizations are stuck in this. They're trying to get better at just at what they are, are doing, and they're missing the opportunities associated with kind of the greater purpose associated with the business that they're in. By virtue of that, they're missing opportunities to innovate. And innovation now is, is so critical. There's kind of a baby in the bathwater problem, I think, that, that causes a lot of senior executives to not understand the value of this. And that is that it, we get it, conf in my opinion, I would be curious about your thoughts here, that we get this concept confused with altruism, that our job is to find out anything that would be good for the customer and make sure they get it. But wait a minute, we got to make a profit. And the more profit we make, the better. What this is really doing is finding what the customer's problems are and seeking win-wins to help them that may not cost as much. And if they're not qualified to, for us to help them, then we point them in a direction that will help them. That actually saves our sales cost rather than trying to convert an unqualified customer. But then by earning their respect and appreciation for really understanding them, you can find those that are qualified. And then we have a much more credibility with them to make the sales process go faster with us. It's That's, selfish. Yeah. It's win-win. It's not altruistic. And a lot of people don't make that distinction, I think. I read something in a book and it, and it really hit me. It said that if we were selfish enough, we would be altruistic. When I heard that and I was reading about altruism is that by virtue of being altruistic, we are being selfish because it serves the greater purpose. So my thinking on that is along that line is that if we were selfish enough, we would be altruistic and that we would be wanting to help everyone because it, it's to our benefit. You know, you look at the uh, example, for instance, of are you familiar with Mattress Mac? He was a Deming uh, no. proponent. Mattress Mac, if you can look about up online out of Houston, you know, they had the hurricane that came through. What did Mattress Mac do? He opened his warehouses to people who didn't have who were flooded out of their homes. And so hundreds of people came to his warehouses to sleep. And so that's where people migrated to. Now, did he lose money doing that? Absolutely. But what greater good did he do? He did a lot of greater good and people are so grateful to him and the business that he's you know, been able to increase by taking that altruistic attitude, it was that it helped grow, grow the business. So I'm a big fan of altruism, but with the understanding that if we were selfish enough, we would all be altruistic. Well, that's a subject that we should maybe pick up at another time. Sure. I have a little different take on it. Definitely the intent is is the same. So this has really been a fascinating conversation, ranging all over a, a broad bunch of things. But I think that they're things that are very important for senior executives and for sales and marketing to have a perspective on 
because there is a system there, cause and effect does apply. You can measure it. And this isn't about giving people processes that don't work or making compliance. It is about pulling what people know from them and helping the organization to achieve more for the customer while also giving the employees more satisfaction, more income, more success for everybody. And that all requires innovation. Any closing remarks or observations? And then how can someone get a hold of you if they want to learn more about what you're doing and the 95 method? I actually have a document that's a free download. It is at my other podcast that I started. It's called mindyournoodles.com forward slash overview. And they can become a part of what we're building. We're getting uh, feedback and input and so forth on how you can go look at your organization customer in. I believe that everyone would benefit from that. It's being updated constantly. So that's why we ask for your email. They can obviously listen to me at the podcast.deming.org for the Deming Institute podcast. And you can reach me directly at trip, T-R-I-P-P, at the 95, which is the number, method.com. Super. And we'll make sure these links are in the show notes. So thank you very much for being here, Trip. I really appreciate it. I know my audience is going to get a lot of value from it. Very good. Thank you for having me. Until next time, everybody. Take care. The Sales Process Excellence Podcast is sponsored by Sales Performance Consultants. Discover how to improve your B2B sales with systems thinking at salesperformance.com.